The opinions expressed on this podcast are solely those of the hosts. Hey, this is Maz and Juan. I'm Maz. And I'm Juan. And we're two adversarial journalists back with another award-winning episode of the Maz and Juan podcast, which, by the way, is on iTunes style. So yeah. if you have a free hour or two, you should click on all our great episodes and listen. Um, today we're joined by a friend of mine from my time at Vassar, Naomi Dan. She's a fellow media fellow for JVP, Jewish Voices for Peace. Thank you, Naomi, for joining us. Thanks for having me. And um, Naomi's here with us because today we're going to be talking about two topics. The first topic concerns Benjamin Netanyahu's speech before Congress earlier this week, and there are um, repercussions from that. And the second topic is the Ferguson DOJ report from Eric Holder and the absolute horrible and heinous things that is going that's going on in the city of Ferguson. But Maz is going to start us off with topic number one. Yeah. So Naomi, thank you very much for joining us today on the Maz and One Show. Uh, we want to talk to you. You know about what everyone's been talking about, who follows Israel Palestine this week, which is Benjamin Netanyahu's speech to Congress. Uh, I noticed that when he, in the lead up to the speech, you know, he announced it about a month and a half or so before, maybe two months before, and there's a lot of skepticism of whether he'd actually do it because it's such an unprecedented thing to give a speech undermining the president's foreign policy in one of the bodies of government of the United States. And it's funny, like. What Netanyahu say what you want about him. He's very good at generating publicity, and among all you know the people who follow this issue, they're buzzing with excitement or like anticipation for speech. It was like Oscars for people who are nerds about this issue. Uh, and you know he gave it, and there's been response to it. And I know that Mayor Dagan, who's former head of Mossad, called it bullshit. And what was your view on what he said and the whole precedent of him speaking to Congress in the first place? Well, actually, the first thing you said was really interesting, that there's been a lot of conversation about um, Israel-Palestine because of this speech. And actually, the right. problem was that there wasn't. He did not um, use the word Palestine once. He didn't say the word Palestine. Absolutely. Um, and a lot of the media coverage, there was so much hype and publicity around it. Um, there are headlines every day saying, like, who's going to skip the speech and talking about what different uh, White House officials were saying that were critical of the speech. There was almost no mention of Palestinians or the Israel-Palestine conflict or um, the human rights violations that Israel commits on a daily basis. Um, so my organization, Jewish Voice for Peace, um, is a group of mostly Jewish Americans and allies who are working for a just peace for both Israelis and Palestinians. Um, and so we are part of the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement. Um, and we're a growing part of that movement. And really, the, there is like a lot of discourse in the US that's sort of shifting our way. Um, mm -hmm. And this was a great opportunity to, to open up that conversation about human rights violations and about Palestinian rights. Um, but unfortunately, a lot of the media coverage really left that out of the whole issue. Right. And it seems striking as well, too, that the extent to which Netanyahu focuses on Iran, he can just avoid the discussion of Israel-Palestine, you know, in full. It actually, it's a very useful deflection. The more that uh, he can raise a specter, the less heat comes on him. He can be on the offensive about, you know, the issues that, you know, other things other than the ongoing apartheid Israel-Palestine. And one thing that we actually published recently at the Intercept, and I'm not sure if JVP has a, like a position on Iran or like Iran sanctions or you know rhetoric in this regard, but Netanyahu's actually been raising the specter quite consistently for the past two decades. He's always been talking about you know an imminent Iran nuclear weapon. With in 1992 he said three to five years, in 1995 he said three to five years, 
in 2009, he actually said they can do build one right now. He told that according to WikiLeaks cables. So it's never really been consistent. And does JVP, like, do you, I know you talk about Israel Palestine, you talk about, like, just general, like, do you weigh in on Israeli politics at all, you know, generally? Um, I imagine Hugh left, but, like, what is, like, the, how does that break down? Uh, that's a good question. Um, so, JVP is a U.S.-based organization, um, and our we see our role as um, a voice for human rights for Palestinians in the United States, and we see... U.S. policy is the main thing that allows Israel to continue committing rights violations with impunity, and so our focus is on changing the conversation in the U.S. and pressuring the U.S. to end its unconditional aid. Right. So we do sometimes weigh in on Israeli politics, but really we see the place that we have power here in the U.S. to change U.S. policy. So that's our focus. And what do you think of his speech generally? Because it was quite hyperbolic, and he's a very interesting orator because he likes to use alliteration and, like, strange metaphors, and we've seen this a lot before. Did you watch the speech? Like, yes. Live? Like, what did you think? Like, and he had this weird, like, all the congressmen are getting up and, like, clapping like seals. Like, I think he got, like, 50-something standing ovations. Why does he have this effect on, like, like, he generates a real emotion among a lot of American politicians. What drives that, do you think? I don't know how much of it's real emotion or how much of it's um, the sense that they feel like they need to kind of toe his line or right. there is real affinity, I guess, between the Republican Party and Netanyahu's party. Right, the Likud, of course. Um, there's actually an Israeli filmmaker who did a little spoof video where he shows uh, so, yeah, yeah. techno song and all the right. senators getting up and down every time, <laughs> sort of at Netanyahu's whim. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, and I think um, it was clear in this case that... that um, you know, people were felt under a lot of pressure to go and to support it. Um, but this is the first time that we've ever seen enough grassroots support that allowed Democrats, who sometimes are upset about Israeli policy, um, mm, to really have the power to voice it and to say to say that they won't show up. And that was a, a real change, I think. Yeah. Um, you talk about that, like, um, what's the senator from Massachusetts, her name? Elizabeth Warren who is a typical sort of politician who toes the line when it comes to these issues. And even she skipped the speech. Is there a changing mood within the American body, body politic on this issue that's allowing, giving certain politicians more freedom, a more leeway to break away um, and not toe the line all the time? Do you sense that in, your, in the work that your organization does? I really hope so. Um, I think that we're starting to get towards that. Um, I wouldn't say that we're there completely yet, um, but I think like really after Gaza this summer, um, you think that was a tipping point for a lot of people. That was a tipping point. Um, I say a lot that JVP has grown. We sort of tripled in size since the summer, just because there were so many people who were upset and were looking for a place where they could voice those opinions. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, I think, yeah, that there's a real shift. Um, but the other part of this was because it was organized in such an inappropriate way, um, people could say that they were angry at Speaker Boehner or that it was a slight to Obama, and that right. also provided them some cover. Mm -hmm. um, you mean instead of speaking truth to power about the way that Israel is behaving with regards to the Palestinians, they used this idea that this was rude and um, on Boehner's part instead of talking about these issues. 
Yeah, and so that's a kind of a mixed thing. I mean, it's both good that they had the ability to speak up and, and sort of take a stand at all, but it also sort of distracted away from the real issues. And part of what we were doing was organizing our members and who are constituents um, to, to write op-eds, to write letters to the editor, to call their senators, to write letters, and really like show people that there is grassroots support for speaking out. It's actually kind of funny what you mentioned earlier about the potential that a lot of the emotion of people who did show up was not genuine as well because there was a clip actually of uh, Rand Paul clapping (laughs) and they made a a gif out of it because apparently he's not clapping with great enthusiasm and then Jennifer Rubin of Washington Post saw the clip and like she wrote an article questioning how hard he was clapping and he didn't seem to really be into it and whether he really does love Israel as much as he's saying. It's well, like a strange, like, limits test. Well, like. Greta, um, what's her name? Greta Van Suchen and Fox News also um, criticized Nancy Pelosi because she said that Nancy Pelosi right. wasn't clapping enthusiastically enough <laughs> right. because she at one point had turned her back when Netanyahu was speaking or something. Like, this so man yeah. is a king that you have to respect and you have to <laughs> jump up and down on cue and clap at a certain um, level or tone. If you don't, then somehow that means that you're anti-Israel. It's absurd. Yeah, you know, it's like a there's a blacklist. There's sort of like a witch hunt, and that's actually something that we face a lot as people I who are imagine. criticizing must... Israel. That there are all these organizations that are looking out to blacklist people for not supporting Israel. Is your organization targeted by smear campaigns at I all? Imagine or like, it is. I imagine yes. it must be. Yes. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> like, what are the kind of things people do or say? Like, what are some things that you can talk about that have happened? Um. Well, there's the hate mail, for one thing. Um, But, I mean, there's plenty of articles, um, both in kind of mainstream, um, like, Jewish press that are really smearing. Um, There there have been violent incidents, even. There's an organization called Stand With Us that's a really right-wing group that's actually now contracted with the Israeli government to pass along their messaging. This is is Josh Block's uh, organization. Is he the executive director? No. No. Stand With Us is... um, Oh, maybe, actually. I don't remember the executive director. Um, But Stand With Us and, like, the Zionist Organization of America, the ZOA, which is Morton Klein. Morton Klein, right. They they both do a lot of smear stuff. There was an incident where Stand With Us people pepper sprayed some of our activists, actually. So it gets really... Were they charged with assault? Pepper sprayed. No. Really? Well, what was the circumstances? Were they, the activists were just protesting? And no, actually, the Stand With Us people came to a meeting, an organizing meeting of JBP activists in the Bay Area. This is actually a couple of years ago. Um, and they had cameras, and they just went around the meeting trying to provoke people into saying things, and then they pepper sprayed two people in the face. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Jeez Louise. So it's really frustrating, actually. There was an article um, in the AP that just came out that was about the campus divestment movement, um, and... The reporter surveyed uh, a lot of organizations both for and against divestment from Israel um, or from Israeli academic institutions and mm-hmm. um, and companies that do business with the occupation. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, they interviewed Stand with Us and gave them like lots of space as if they were like these really you know legitimate people, which. They're, they're funded by the Israeli government to distribute propaganda. Right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> so that was a little frustrating. And, and we our voices are delegitimized a lot by things like that. What do you think of... Uh, I know there's been a prol- proliferation of more center-left groups, I think, in sort of a rebellion against like people who don't fit in with APAC or that narrative, like J Street and JVP. Do you think that within the Jewish community also like the narrative is shifting you know, as it is throughout America? Yes, actually. Um, and there are even polls that support this. Um, there was a poll, a Gallup poll that came out over the summer um, 
that showed really clearly, and there was a Pew poll from a couple of years ago that showed um, very clearly that there's a generational shift a generational in the Jewish shift. community, right, right. Um, and that young people are much less likely to support Israel unconditionally. Um, J Street has a really large um, student group, J Street U, mm-hmm. um, but actually, you know, this summer, um, J Street did support um, the war on Gaza. Right, right. Um, JVP was the only national Jewish organization that unequivocally took a stance that was very critical of that. Um, and so I actually am, work with a lot of people who used to be involved in J Street um, who are now forming a new group called If Not Now, um, which right, is aiming to mobilize yeah, right, the right. Jewish community to oppose the occupation. Right. What's the status of the BDS um, movement? Um, so the BDS movement started in 2005, um, and has grown really, I think, at a faster pace than even they expected. Um, it's often compared to the South African BDS movement, which, um, you know, that comparison has good parallels and some, like, not so helpful parallels. Um, but, you know, in that case, like, it took about 30 years. The first calls for divestment were in the 50s, and mm. it took till the 80s to end apartheid. And, right. and there's still a lot of work to be done. And mm-hmm. so the BDS movement's now 10 years old. Uh-huh. Um, it's really taken off in Europe. Um, there's been a lot of progress and a lot of divestment from major companies who are involved um, in enforcing the occupation. Um, it's still um, in the U.S. There's, there's real fights to be had. Um, but the campus divestment movement is growing a lot. Um, there, I think, Northwestern voted to divest in the last couple of weeks. University of Toledo this week. Um, Stanford as well, too. Stanford. Yeah. Um, seven out of the ten UC schools. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's an aspect where it's growing. There's also um, corporate boycotts that are growing. Mm-hmm. Um, we just had a big win a couple months ago. Our chapter in Durham, North Carolina, um, ended. A, they got the city council to end a contract with G4S, which is a British private security firm that oh, yeah, you told enforces me about this checkpoints. Before. Yes, yes. They um, do security in Israeli prisons, and they also do private security stuff in the United States. So there's a kind of growing movement against them as a company, um, which is really hopeful and exciting. Right. No, it's excellent. So I guess like, I'm curious, how did you come to like use politics and to be in with? Like, what inspired you? Because it's it's a radical position. It's like a position which is difficult to take in the sense that you get a lot of heat and like it's not an easy position to take like you could swim the tide which i think most people do because it's easier to do like what inspired you to you know join j street and to take well, not j street JVP. sorry jvp sorry but, but like the left of uh this movement and yeah left of j street even what uh like how did that come about um that's a good question i wish i had a better i wish i had a, a ticking point like kind of turning point moment where i could um pinpoint exactly what it was. Um, but I studied peace and justice in college, um, which meant I read a lot about this conflict and it was at a very like academic level. And then um, things sort of heated up on campus and I was part of some debates and um, and actually decided that you know it wasn't enough to, to just say I was critical and it wasn't enough to, to read about it, um, but actually like needed to be doing real organizing because there were so many things that needed to change like within our community here and the way that we talk about the issue. Right. Um, so I was with Juan at Vassar and um, started an SJP chapter, which is Students for Justice in Palestine, and there was a huge backlash. Oh, and you actually, started the SJP chapter? I <laughs> helped. There was a group of a us huge backlash. That's an understatement. <laughs> but actually, I think like the backlash was part of also what radicalized me and, yes. and other people as well. Um, right. At the same time, I was um, the president of the Vassar Jewish Union, and so I was <laughs> kind of in this really tricky position where... Um, 
people were pitting the Jewish community against people who were advocating for Palestinian rights, and I felt and like I didn't really, want to be perceived as... And saying really nasty things about you. Because um, I remember when I was in Chicago and I went to a, um, a Vassar like, um, alumni meeting, yeah. and there were these older women there, and they had, they'd already heard of Naomi, and they called her an infiltrator. Because they believed that she had taken over the Vassar Jewish Union <laughs> for the purpose of radicalizing them and turning them She's a sleeper well. agent like Brody. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. So there was, there was a fierce backlash to that, but that hasn't deterred you at all. No, um, you know, there are people that I'm never going to convince because they don't want to hear it um, and because they're prejudiced and they want to close their ears and, and that's fine. But there are a lot of people in the middle who just haven't heard about this issue. They've been mm-hmm. blinded by the framing that they hear all the time. From the traditional media, yeah. From the that. traditional media, from, I mean, a lot of like Jewish institutions teach a story of Israel that really just leaves out the Palestinian narrative completely. And so once people get some of that information, it causes a lot of questioning. And for some people, it's really emotional and painful. Mm-hmm. But there are people who are like in that movable middle that we can radicalize on this issue. And right. that's the work that I'm doing. Fabulous. Excellent. So yeah. we want to topic two. Yeah. Um, topic two concerns the Ferguson report that was issued by the Department of Justice, I believe this past Tuesday. And some of the highlights from the report, which just read like a horrible horrible novel um, concerns municipal officials who were using their government emails to send around racist jokes that refer to the president as a chimpanzee. There was a picture of um, some new topless African women and the caption read Michelle Obama's um, high school reunion. We know that the Ferguson police were disproportionately targeting, not just targeting, but harassing and brutalizing the poor black people who live in Ferguson. And Ma's I was texting with you when we were, when I was reading the report, and you said that it was just vicious. Yeah, that kind of racism is mean, man. Like it hurts. Like <laughs> yeah, it does. It's not like uh, you know complaining about people of another, which is like that's what you shouldn't complain about people as a whole race. But like, even though we do that about white even people, though, yeah, we do. That. But that's but, like, different. It's kind of different. It's different. It's like, yeah, it's just like the way that people in authority were talking about black people as not humans and analogizing them to animals. Even the president, this man who attained <laughs> such a great position, it's just very hurtful, and it's like. Uh, it harkens back to a lot of the worst institutional racism, which was, of course, slavery and uh, colonialism to some extent, where, you know, the justification of certain races to have hegemony over others was employed on a pseudo-scientific basis where, you know, there's like a ranking of humanity. Yeah. And those ideas are still very deeply ingrained, including among people who are supposed to be your friends, quote-unquote, the police officers, you know, in some narrative society. The, yeah, yeah. <laughs> One of the things, and I think this is a great contradiction of American racial supremacy, because the um, the Ferguson officials that were interviewed by the DOJ, they were just so brazen. They told the investigators that black people in Ferguson were just irresponsible. I mean, I just how can't. How could they have said that? That's First of all, how can you say that when it, simultaneously you're robbing this, these damn people of their labor and their wealth? There were countless examples in the DOJ report of people who lost their jobs after encounters with these racist-ass cops. In one instance, the black man who was cooling off in his car after playing a basketball game, and the police officer comes along, asking what he's doing. He said, I'm cooling off in the car. They get into it because the, the guy won't let him search the car because he doesn't have any right to. And the cop pulls a gun on him and arrests him and charges him with eight different things, including the fact that he gave his name as Mike instead of Michael. And the man lost his job because of that. And the man lost his job because of that. So you're calling black people irresponsible the same time you're robbing them, you're looting from them, you're stealing the little money they have 
and costing them their livelihoods and their unemployments, while at the same time, you're fixing the tickets of your white buddies, because there was a cop and a judge in the report who were fixing the tickets of their, like, of their homeboys and shit while they're calling black people irresponsible. But black people are always irresponsible, and white people are never responsible for anything in this country, especially in um, cities and municipalities like Ferguson that are run by like this white mob, and that's what that was. That's a racket that's been run in Ferguson. It's not just something that's isolated to the city of Ferguson. It's something that's all across this country in these small, poor, working-class suburbs and big cities where police departments and uh, authorities that, who are tasked with administering um, county services are exploiting and basically stealing from black people. I think Tanhazi Coates made a very good point, which was that uh, this is another case of plunder made legal in America, which is the history of America in a lot of ways. Economic uh, exploitation of predominantly, especially black people, more than anybody in America. Of mm -hmm. course, from their labor when they first came to North America until today, in this legalized sort of extortion you see in places like Ferguson. And, you know, there's always an economic component that uh, it's, it's the real, like, the material effect of racism. So racism enables this sort of policy to be implemented in Ferguson, and it enables an economic system which you know, functions based on exploiting people, making them pay fines, and, you know, all these little death by a million cuts, which is, you know, interaction with authority. And, you know, for people in uh, places like this, because in the United States there's no legalized health care, and there's not, like, I'm sorry, no, there's no universal health care, and there are not a lot of other social services, as you may see in European welfare states, uh -huh. other places. So for people in places like Ferguson, maybe the only interaction with the government you're going to have is with the police. And it's an interaction which is fundamentally aggressive, disrespectful, and, you know, it's menacing. So this is the only, like, it's the same terror on in a different way which has been expressed for hundreds of years. Yeah, you're right. And I won't go back to a show we did a few episodes ago when we had the socialists on and we talked about how you can't have capitalism without having racism. And yeah. that, that quote from Malcolm X, but he goes on and saying that quote Malcolm X, that capitalism today functions in a way that it's like vultures and they're sucking the blood out of um, poor and weaker people. And black people in Ferguson, I don't want to call them weak, but they have no way to fight back against us. There's no, how, are you, how the hell are you going to fight back against a police officer who has a gun to your head, who is sicking dogs on you too? That's another thing to report. They were sicking dogs. Yeah, the yeah. All the people who, was bitten, who were bitten by dogs in Ferguson <laughs> were black, including like children and shit. That's unbelievable. And I, I read a stat, actually, 9 out of 10 incidents of violent force in Ferguson by the police department were of black people. 9 out of 10. Like, that's how, more than 9 out of 10, actually. <laughs> yeah. That's how often, that's, uh, that's how stark the disparity is. And I was thinking when you said that, like, who's that one white person? What did he do that caused him to be? He was racially, racially, racially <laughs> ambiguous. Or he did something really, something really bad. Or he was sticking up for the black people. Or he was sticking up for the black people. That could have been, that could have been part of it, too. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know. And the thing is, like, to remember, like, Ferguson became emblazoned on the map and national uh -huh. consciousness from what happened, you know, after Mike Brown was shot and after the protests. But this is just one random, like, suburban place in one city, like, medium-sized city in America. This is a whole country, and this has been institutionalized, and a spotlight has been shined in this tiny corner, and look what's turned up. Imagine what the whole system looks like. And, of course, you know what? No one believed this. Like, people didn't believe, like, that this stuff well, was yeah. going on. Or yeah. that people are exaggerating, or, like, you know, like, but this is, like, a symptoms of, like, pseudo-military occupation. What you mentioned about dogs, actually a video which is going viral in Israel right now, if like, you know, dogs yeah, I saw being sent down this I saw that from kid. the JPP Twitter. Yeah. Right, right. So it's many of the same dynamics of occupation 
can be witnessed. It's military occupation. Under, oh, that's like, saying that, that's more, what, well, racial supremacy, that's the way it operates. Um, it's right. not surprising then, um, not to say that you said it was, that what the tactics we see used in Ferguson and St. Louis are also being used by the Israeli government as well. Absolutely. That's the way it works. You have right. to brutalize people in order to keep your boot on their neck and to suck the fucking life out of them. Right, right. Well, anyway, and then on that happy note, <laughs> time for some tell me something good it's our little segment where everyone shares something fascinating or interesting that they're reading or watching and um Naomi you Mars why don't you go first tell me something good Mars well I just uh I'm like I guess I can't say I'm jet lagged because I didn't change time zones and I also didn't get on a plane but uh hey, what are you talking about I was about to say I'm tired oh <laughs> okay sorry sorry <laughs> Oh, you're, <laughs> oh, you're tired. So what are you? What are I, I you was I was just got off the train like a few minutes ago from Boston. I was attending the trial of uh, Jahar Sarnayev, who's a Boston bomber, uh, quote unquote. So, I mean, I guess it's not something I read or anything, but I was just I was very like interested in like how this came about. He's a very enigmatic figure because he was a young guy and he grew up here, and by all accounts he was normal and well adjusted. And then he committed this heinous act, which he didn't, you know, admit to committing at the trial. Well, his lawyer admitted. His lawyer thing, admitted, yeah, 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 on his behalf. So I've been reading some books, like, about him and the socio-psychological process, which maybe have led to what came about. And, you know, Jahar was, like, relatively well-adjusted, but he did grow up in, for the formative years, at least till, you know, that's about 12 or 11, maybe 10. He grew up in Chechnya, an environment of war, and his brother did as well, too. And that seemed to have had an impact on him. And he's just, like, I'm trying to learn as much about him as I can, and I see him in the courtroom in the back of his head, but, like, I don't really get to interact with him. So that's something that uh, I've been kind of deep into. So I just finished a book. It's very provocatively titled, but actually it's a lot more nuanced than title. It's Why Do Good Kids Become Deadly Terrorists by Mm -hmm. this uh, this, uh, PhD in sociology. And it's actually very nuanced and uh, gives a very fair and, I think, dispassionate picture of him. It's empathetic to him, despite... A terrible act he committed. So that's what I've been into. And I'm reading another book right now too, but I don't. Uh, I don't know. All right. No, I mean, well, actually, why? Why don't you go and then? All right. Yeah, I'll go. So um, one of the things that I picked up from the Ferguson report, I was reading. There's a section or a scene in there where the police are called to a domestic disturbance um, incident, and the man who supposedly or allegedly was hitting or assaulting the woman had left, but the police charged the woman with an occupancy permit violation, and then they arrested her. Anyway, she goes on to say... This was in the report? This was in the report. And she goes on to say um, that she hates the Ferguson police and she'll never call them again, even if she's being killed. And that's a whole different thing. But I've gotten a lot of emails and tweets from people talking about this occupancy thing and how and why the police have the power to go into someone's home to determine who who should be there and who shouldn't be there and to arrest people for that. I didn't even know you can be arrested for something like that. I didn't know you can be arrested for having someone over spend a night over your house who didn't belong there. It seems absurd. Occupancy permit? An occupancy permit violation, yes. So I'm thinking I'm going to do some research and more reporting on this. I think this has the potential to be a great long story about how the police are exploiting this loophole in the law and using, just, using it as just another example or tool to um, oppress and to terrorize the shit out of poor people. You're teasing your future stories in the cast, man. That's what you got to do. That's why, that's why we made this podcast, be honest. They only told me something good. Uh, well, I wouldn't actually say that this is good, but I've been oh, wanting to talk shit. to somebody yeah. about it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there was an article in the New York Times last week about uh, Western Sahara, which is not something that you hear about very often. Um, it's a territory that's been under occupation from Morocco for the last 40 years and has been totally forgotten by everybody. 
Um, but there was an article in the New York Times about it last week saying that the Sahrawi rebels who have been trying to achieve self-determination for 40 years um, are now considering taking up arms again if the UN doesn't act um, in the next couple of months. And there's a UN peacekeeping mission that's up for renewal in April. Um, and so that was like a little, I don't think that like the fact that they want to go back to war is a hopeful thing, but the yeah. fact that anyone was thinking about them at all right, and right. that they got that story up there and, you know, maybe in the next couple months it will be more of a conversation. It's, it's something that's been totally overlooked, um, and people should be talking about it. Oh, we sure hope Actually, so. Actually, I camped out there last year, like not in the actual war zone, you what? but in the Western Sahara. You camped out? You camped yeah, there? Yeah. You can go out there. They can, like, take <laughs> Where did you go? It was like... The border, like, there's a zone near Mauritius and, like, Morocco, and, like, you're actually in the Sahara, and then it's in the Western Sahara, but it's, like, like, you can see the Algerian border, basically, from where you are. Oh, okay, yeah. so, like, more on that side. Right, right. I took, um, I traveled down to Layoun from, like, oh, yeah. Tetuan, or from Tantan. Tetuan. And, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. I lived in Senegal for a while. <laughs> on that note I think that's the end of the show Naomi thanks for joining us today. we really appreciate thanks, it thanks for having me and thank you all for listening this is Maz and Juan I'm Maz and I'm Juan and we'll be back next week uh, this is Maz and Juan no no I'd say that I thought you said we should <laughs> no 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 man okay alright all right, everyone be quiet why do you ask me to go first no I was telling you go first with Naomi no alright just relax one let me count down five four